Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hush, little darling, don't you cry. Every little thing's gonna be all right. Don't worry, don't be afraid. Every little thing's gonna be okay. Ready to roll? That's my voice in my ear. It's the Sharp Tongue Podcast. It's so weird because I put my headphones on and I can hear my voice. And it, to me, my voice sounds so masculine. And I've always thought I've had a masculine voice. Do you think I have a masculine voice? Not really. Not really? What are you eating over there? What's your What are you having for lunch? Oh shit, girl! You're going mad healthy. That's a LA lunch right there. You're like, I'm having salad with hope and adopted puppies. <laughs> oh man, I have just barely recovered from my 420 show last week. Um, I don't know if you guys listened to last week's podcast. It was a very gratuitously inspired. I don't know if that's a word, but I'm going to make it a word. Uh, in- uh, inspired marijuana show uh, that I did on the podcast and then I also did a live show at the Hollywood Improv it was a lot of fun but listen to last week's episode with Avery Pearson and the episode we just met like that was basically the first time him and I spoke and we both got uh, high in the clouds off of uh, some delicious stuff from my Honey Bear Farms friends and uh, yeah so check it out and then the live podcast that I taped at the Hollywood Improv was a total... (laughs) It took me like four days to recover from that. I couldn't even, I was walking down Melrose like I need a fried chicken sandwich and I'm going to punch somebody to get it right now. It it felt like it took me an hour to walk a block because the way my my whole body felt from taking every sort of marijuana supplement that I could find in front of me for the show. I realized that, you know, sometimes less is more. Hey, everything in hindsight, what do you want from me? I'm not a perfect fucking human being. I'm pretty close to it, but the flatulence is an issue. So take what you can get. Take it or leave it, folks. Take it or motherfucking leave it. Um, This week on the podcast, we have continual support from our sponsors, and I appreciate it. And again, this week, we are sponsored by Parachute, parachutehome.com. It's an online bedding brand based in Venice Beach, which is right near me. Uh, And you guys know great sleep starts with your sheets. I mean, I think it starts with a lot of stuff. I think a good fingering can help. I think a good workout can help. I think a good, you know, snuggle, maybe some Netflix, Cheez-Its. A lot of that stuff can help, but sheets are important. And Parachute has created a line of everyday bedding essentials from sheets to comforters to give you superior sleep. Sleep is important, motherfuckers. And the website is pretty straightforward. It's very easy to use. You just select the bedding items that you want and have them delivered directly to your front door. That's it. Free shipping, free returns, 30-day night risk. 30-night risk-free guarantee. I mean, what are you guys going to do with these sheets for 30 nights? That's the one thing. Like, how do they make that work for a 30-night risk-free sheet tryout? What if you shit your sheets? Do you still get to return them? 
I just had that weird throat gurgle. I don't know. Could, could you hear that? <laughs> what if whatever what if, what if whatever happened to my throat just now got on the sheets? That's interesting. Well, it says 30-night risk-free guarantee. That's a pretty damn good deal. And especially if there's free shipping. Shipping usually is expensive, man. Unless you get that, like, Amazon Prime. Shipping is expensive. Um, they also give safe sleep, which I think is a cool part about this company. They partnered with United Nations Nothing But Nets to send life-saving bed nets to fight against malaria. So, hey, it's a company with some sort of conscience to them other than just trying to make some money. So go to the website. It's super easy to use. Uh, and they have a blog, too. Did you guys know Thread Count is a marketing gimmick? I didn't know that. I was that girl that was always like, I sleep on some satin sheets. How much Thread Count is you fucking with? If you ain't fucking with like 900 thread count, you got to get the fuck out of my life, motherfucker. I need like at least Egyptian count on 300,000 thread count. So check out that. Check out their blog. And how do you fold a fitted sheet? That's one thing that I can. I did it once. I'll never be able to do it again. <laughs> and um, 40% of Americans sleep without a top sheet. You guys are gross. Put a top sheet on your bed for Christ's sake. Fart clouds are real. What do you think? When you fart, there's farticles that, that sneak out of there. So put a top sheet on, you, you monsters. Go to parachutehome.com forward slash sharp, as in sharp tongue, for new sheets, duvets, other bedding essentials. And you guys will get $25 off your first order by using order code sharp, S-H-A-R-P. That's parachutehome.com forward slash sharp. And you guys get $25 off. So you're welcome. Think of me when you're chilling in your sheets. Use a top sheet, you sloppy sons of bitches. Um, where am I going to be? I'm going to give you a lowdown of where I'm going to be at. I have a weekend off, which is so exciting. Uh, the first weekend of May, May 6th, 7th, and 8th, I'm going to be in Albany, New York at the Funny Bone. It's a new club. Come check me out. Then I'm going to go visit my new nephew, who's adorable. My sister keeps sending me videos of him cooing and making dumb noises because babies don't know English. And it isn't working, Emily. My ovaries are locked down. Um, my periods are coming just as normal and the eggs are shedded out of my body because I don't want to make another baby. Another one. Oh my God. Is that like a Freudian slip? Did I have a baby I didn't know about? <laughs> Am I counting my dogs? Oh, I've sunk to a new lonely low. Um, the 13th, 14th and 15th of May, the following weekend, I will be at Levity Live in the Palisades Mall in West Nyack. And then the 19th, 20th and 21st, I'm at the Comedy Zone in Charlotte, North Carolina. You can go to jessiemay.com for tickets. If you would like to win some tickets, email us at sharptonguepodcast at gmail.com to win free tickets. Just let me know where you are living. And if I'm close by, you could win some free tickets and come see me live, y'all. How about that? Laugh yourself happy. That's what I say. You know, you got to find healthy ways to make yourself happy. So check that out. Come see me. Um, and I am excited because... The guest that I have coming on is standing right in front of me, and um, he is tat. Damn, you're tatted up, man. You're re he's really tatted up. He's got a very interesting life story, and he came. I, I asked my producers here for a bunch of interesting people, you know, because comedians are interesting. Don't get me wrong, but I wanted like a mortician. I asked for. I le legitimately asked for an ex-con. Ask and you shall receive. <laughs> 
I um, was like, yeah, I want an ex-con. I want to talk to a guy who's been through some shit and can talk about being on the other side. And they delivered. Um, I'm very excited. He's an addiction expert. He's an author and founder of Refuge Recovery. His name is Noah Levine. Lev- Levine. Levine? I see you shouldn't you shouldn't pronounce a motherfucker's name wrong when he's tatted up to his neck and he's got silver teeth. You're legit. Come and sit down. Have a seat. You tell us put the headphones on and let us know how to say your name properly. How are you, sir? Give me give me some skin. I'm good. How are you? What's up? What's happening? Yeah, this is, welcome to the Sharp Tongue podcast. Awesome. Levine. Yeah, doesn't matter so much. You know, I had a Dr. Levine growing up. Levine is more common pronunciation. Yeah. It is a more common. What is your background? Are you think, like regular I'm pretty white? sure that my uh, grandfather was a self-hating Jew. And he tried to, <laughs> I'm pretty sure that he tried to make it a little less Jewy. I think you're right. Levine to Levine. I think you're right. I think that's what happened. He tried to make it less Jewy. He's like, it kind of sounds French. <laughs> Levine. Less Jewy should be your next book title. <laughs> <laughs> my life is an ex-con. Less Jewy. <laughs> I have so many questions for you. And I was thinking, like, you've been probably been asked, here's some water for you in case we start to, like, get really serious. In case, in case you start to get dry mouth and make you very nervous. Um, I'm sure you've been asked a thousand questions. I'm sure you've been asked it all. I have. I've been asked it all. How old are you? I'm 45. Holy shit. You look good. Thanks. For somebody who used to do drugs... And you're an ex-con? No, seriously. Yeah, but I got out of trouble. I got in a lot of trouble when I was a kid. Early, early on. But I got out of trouble really young. How do you, what do you attribute that to? Like, because I feel like a majority of people, it's it's a hard life to get out of. Yeah. How the hell did you get out so early? Most of my friends didn't didn't make it out. Um, I think that for me, I had the perfect setup in this life of uh, some suffering. Yeah. But also some support some love and some support. So a lot of times when I was getting locked up as a kid, the other kids that I was getting locked up with, they didn't have a loving family that was showing up for them. Oh, man. And they didn't make it out. And I had a dysfunctional but loving family that kept showing up for me. That's better than nothing. For sure. For sure. And when I was 17 years old, my father, who was a meditator, he said, why don't you try meditation? And at the time, I was like, how about some real help, like a lawyer? Like, <laughs> Yo, can I get some legit, some legit. And, <laughs> out of that uh, mindset? You're like, what's meditation going to do? But my pops was, and he shared with me that he had done time. My pops had done a year on Rikers Island in the 60s for a, Fuck. For a weed bust. And, and But I grew up with this like hippie, spiritual, meditator father. And he said, you know, it's really, I meditate not because like I'm a good person, but because it saved my life. How, how... Now, I, people use terms, especially I say like white people. I'll say everyone yells at me for saying white people. People in general say and use terms. I feel like karma and meditate and all these things. They use them very lightly, but they those are real things that mean something. So, what is it, when you say meditation? Like, it's not just sitting down and closing your eyes. It's a real practice. There's a whole religion based around it. Well, absolutely, and. Um... You know, meditation means a lot of different things to a lot of different people, and maybe every religion has some form of meditation. Right. Um, for me, I was introduced to Buddhist meditation, and even that term, even Buddhist meditation, there's the Zen Buddhists in Japan, and there's the Tibetan Buddhists right. in Tibet, and there's what we call Theravadan Buddhists in Southeast Asia, and Sri Lanka, and Burma, and Thailand, and Laos, and 
So I was introduced to mindfulness, and now in in America, like the new thing is mindfulness meditation, where they don't even they pretend like it's not even Buddhism, right? And they just say like this is psychology and this is science, and we've done studies on this, but mindfulness is Buddhism, right? Actually, and um, I was introduced to mindfulness, and so I went uh, into my cell, I got the instructions over the phone, and I went into my this is cell. you're still incarcerated, incarcerated, yeah. And right after a suicide attempt, and I had just faced my third felony, I was 17 years old, I was shooting heroin, I was smoking crack, I was on the streets, and... Jesus, your third felony? Third felony. What were they for? Um, Violent crimes, and like um, mugging people, and, you know, burglaries, and weapons, and... Wow, man. You know, just like, I was, I was, um, I mean, I was a a bad person, but I was more like... um, just being a drug addict, trying to live, kind of trying to support my habit on the street. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't even, for me, I, as a person who doesn't know you and a person who has opinions about stuff, I wouldn't even call you a bad person. I would just say you're just someone trying to survive the life that you're in. Yeah, no, I was, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, not bad, but uh, in a lot of pain and spilling that pain. And out. not knowing how to get out of it. Yes, but a dangerous person and, un, you know, a, uh, unskillful, unsafe, you know, environment that I had put myself in. At and, 17, man. Yeah, in and out from 12 to 17. <sighs> but like you said, you know, I that was uh, 28 years ago. I got sober then. The meditation, I stopped doing drugs. And, you know, I had my whole life in, ahead of me. You know, like, yeah. I, I, I got clean young. Went back to school, became a psychotherapist, you know. Got a degree? Oh, yeah, I have a master's in psychology. Fuck. And My um, sister doesn't. She doesn't even use it. <laughs> I hardly use it too, actually, the truth is. Because my main thing is, is that I teach Buddhism, and I run this treatment center called Refuge Recovery where we use Buddhism to help people, addicts recover. And so, I mean, I do. I have a small private practice where I do some counseling. Is that out of L.A.? Yeah, I know you do international um, stuff tra- with recovery. I travel, but I travel all the time, but our treatment center is here in Los Angeles and Hollywood over closer to Silver Lake. East okay. Side. Yeah. And how do people, if they're if they need help, how do they... Uh, RefugeRecovery.com is the website that will t- tell them both about the treatment center, but it'll also tell them about Refuge Recovery meetings. So Refuge Recovery, I don't know if, what you know about addiction and recovery, but the dominant paradigm, the main program is the, the Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, the, what we call the 12-step program. Yeah. 12-step programs are based in the Bible. They're based on God will remove your shortcomings, God will help you stay sober, God will... Uh, take away what's causing your addiction and you know only God can and will if if he's sought and so it's a very you know judeo-christian theistic mindset about what addiction is and how to recover from it you know I started going to 12-step programs at seven earlier than that I started getting sent to them at like 13 because I was and how can you even I mean I'm trying to wrap my mind around you being that first of all you're 13 you're going through puberty you've been going through the system and just your whole mental ability to process everything and also try and recover that blows my mind i can't even i can barely even function yeah, yeah. on a daily basis here in la <laughs> yeah i don't yeah. know what what to put in my smoothie yeah you know i went in the deep end early you know and like i started using when i was 7 years old I heard you just talking shit about having children, but I have a seven-year-old. I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and I look wow. at my seven-year-old daughter. I'm like, she's not getting high, is she? Because I was getting high when I was seven. And why do you? Why do you think? How did you have access to it, and how did that happen? 
well, my parents, you know, like it was around. It, right. It was, the, it it was, was the era. culture that I was in. It was the hippie parents right. and they're smoking weed and they're drinking and they have LSD and mushrooms in them. You know, it's it's around me. I love the juxtaposition of this episode, by the way, because last week was my 420 episode. So this is a total 1-8. It's almost like, <laughs> hey, if you get in too deep, this is what the fuck can happen. You know, because there's another side to it. As, as much as it is with somebody who can have their limits and in, in partake in these vices, if you will, there is a darker side and a yeah. realistic side to it that also needs to be brought to light. For sure. And I'm one of the drug addicts, recovering drug, drug addicts that would actually say, uh, I'm grateful for drugs. I'm not like one of those like, you know, illegal. I mean, I'm, I'm, I would land much more on the like legalize and educate and treat and, you know, like give some resources to a lot of people can use drugs and it's not a problem. For right. Them. But then some of us actually can't. You know, we become addicted and destructive and have no regard for consequences. And but it, I'm one of those people I would land in the like, I'm grateful for drugs because I started getting high when I was seven because I was suicidal. At I wanted, that age? I wanted to die. At, how, how do you even how do, at that age? How do you even at five years old? What? I had a knife. I had a plan. And I had this sort of, it was like the security blanket for me. Like, if it gets bad, I can get out. How do you, at five, do you remember how you could even process thoughts like that? Well, here's something what, else. What, what is you? Here's something else for me, and part of the process for me, is that my father uh, worked with death and dying. Mm. He was teaching meditation, Buddhist, Hindu principles to people who were terminally ill. Right. Or, and and he was a Hindu Buddhist minded person, so he taught us about reincarnation. Wow! He, he said, "Okay, yeah, everybody dies, but it's not the end. There is an something that continues." So in my five year old, <laughs> you're like, "Yo, what's next, Pa?" Exactly. I'm like, "Cool, I want out. I want, I'd, I'd rather have a different life. Oh, you know, shit. this this one's not too pleasant. You know, That's my so parents, heavy. My parents are divorced. My mom's an alcoholic. My dad's not around. Like." I want out. I have this abusive stepfather. I want out. Your stepfather was your mother's. Yeah, my mother's second husband was. He was abusive physically, verbally. So I was just like, I want out. And in my mind, it was almost like the cartoons, right? And then you get the cartoons where Wiley Coyote's going off the cliff and dying, but he's in a comical way. But he's there. (laughs) Yeah. Then he's but he's there again. He's there again. So to me, I was like, I want to kill myself so that I can start over. Wow. As and, a five-year-old, dude, that's but, wild. But when I started smoking weed, I was like, oh, I don't have to kill myself. This takes all of the edge Yeah. Off. When I started drinking, when I started eating acid at 10 years old, when I started snorting cocaine at 12 <gasps> years old, I was like, I found the solution to my pain. <laughs> Life is worth living. Most, most kids are like sleepovers. Yes. Roller skating. You're like, acid. Acid. And when I heard punk rock at 10 years old in 1980... I was like, what? oh, wait, this is the music that you know, these people are singing. To you. To you know, how I feel. Yep. This angst, this yep. rejection of society, this you know, anarchist movement. So with punk rock and drugs, you know, I had a good run for a few there, yeah. few years there in the early 80s. What punk but, rock music were you into? Well, I mean, it started with the early English stuff. Yep. You know, with Clash and Pistols and The Damned and all of that early stuff. And then, you know, by the mid-80s, there was all this great American Did you get into, like, New York City punk in the 80s? 
Uh, I, I mean, of course, the Ramones are the roots yeah. of New York and, and of, of punk rock in general. But, um, you know, for me, it went to like the California, like Black Flag, Circle Jerks, Adolescence, the kind wow. of Southern California yep. surf punk. And then, um, you know, I went all kinds of different phases with, with punk. I was a street punk with a mohawk. I was a surf punk, a skate punk. I can see like, that. I can really see that. You know, so I, but growing up, and it was great. Like, what a great scene to just be, like, smashed out of your mind and going to punk shows all of the time. And but feel I, like you're a part of a thing. I was a part of a thing. And yeah. I was on the streets, and we had squats, and we had, you know, drugs and sex. And, you know, and it was fun for a while. And then there's that line that gets crossed where it's like, oh, this isn't fun. I'm a homeless drug addict. You know, like being punk rock street kid felt so romantic and so rebellious. And then it was like, actually, I'm strung out and I keep getting locked up and I'm smoking crack every day and I'm not even going to punk shows anymore. How are you? How would you get money? Crime. Just robbing and just crime. (sighs) Wow. And your parents, your mom, where where was your mom during all this? My mom was uh, she was around. My father was in New Mexico. My mom was in California in Santa Cruz where I grew up. And um, But my mom was in her own mess at the time. She was with some guy that just got out of prison. They were strung out on, on meth. Fuck, man. They were, you know, drinking alcoholically. I was, you know, like kind of sleeping on the couch or the, you know, my, my little brother's bunk beds or being on the street. So she was there. She loved me. She was, you know, every time I got locked up, she'd come to juvie and try to get me out. But she was in her own mess at yeah, the time. Yeah, it sounds like her yeah. sort of habits or whatever definitely permeated. For sure. Down to her son. And your For father, sure. was he ever a partaker? Fa- my father was um, pretty righteous. Like I had said earlier, he had a past yeah. uh, of, a, incarceration. of addiction, incarceration. He'd been strung out on heroin. He had that sort of beatnik, like, let's go to Mexico City and shoot heroin with burros. But and- also it was a different generation. <laughs> like we said, you yeah. know, it, it was yeah. everything was so experimental then. And especially with the war on drugs and the 60s and the sexual yeah. revolution. They were, they, were getting, they were getting free and they were about peace and love. Yes. And, and, and self-expression. And my, my generation, my the culture that I was in was about drugs and violence. And rebellion. You know, and rebellion yeah. in that way. So... <laughs> Um, and what, your father's also an author. Yeah, my father's written a whole bunch of books, and he's a wonderful teacher. He actually died this year in January. Oh, I'm sorry. But I mean, he was like this amazing teacher to so many people. And to me, right, he taught me meditation while I was in juvenile hall. He said, try this. And I tried it, and I was so uh, skeptical. I'm sure. Yeah, so it's, so, it's a deviation yeah, from what you've yeah, been doing. I don't know what Buddhism is. I don't know what meditation is. I'm not interested in that. But I want to get free, and I'm suffering enough that I'll try anything. And I knew I was addicted. I mean, I knew it had been strung out for a while. And when I sat in the cell, and you asked earlier about what is meditation, what's that mean? Yeah, to sit there, close your eyes. So the instructions that I was given at that time was um, bring your attention to your breath. And breathing in, pay attention to the sensations that the breath creates. Just, you know, ignore your mind that's right. in the future that's in the past come fully into your body as much as you can oh, God, breathing in feel the breath anxiety. <laughs> <laughs> breathing out be you know be with the sensations that the breath you know creates on the outside. so more like the physical the well also accompaniment. I mean, but but the um the outcome of that is like oh good like most of what's wrong right now is the future what's gonna happen in the here. anticipation in the fear right 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 or the shame of the past right now no matter how anxious I'm, in, I'm in a cell. But still, this is my being podcast studio. The- Does it feel like a cell? <laughs> 
we probably should redecorate, guys. Well, it is kind of brick walls. <laughs> yeah. no, I mean, I'm talking about in, in, that, in that moment, moment. when I learned. Like I was in a cell, so it wasn't like a great experience, and I was detoxing and kicking drugs. In, and, se- in 17. But present time awareness was more of a relief because I was really worried about prison. And I was in all of this shame about what I had done to get in this situation. So being with that you know, anxiousness and fear of the present was much better than where my, the future, you know, than my mind. Right. So mindfulness is, is that by definition, it's present time awareness, what's happening here and now. And so I learned that right in the beginning and it was a, a revelation to me. I didn't, what I learned from that meditation was that I don't have to obey my mind because it was my mind that was saying, steal, fight, get loaded, (laughs) Because it's a chemical thing. I could actually start to ignore it and come back into the body and not in the brain that was saying, you know, act out. And, you know, through that mindfulness technique, I was able to not take drugs ever again. That's that's mind blowing (laughs) for, you know, a lack of a better term. The fact that you at 17, you were able to literally will yourself through your body to take back control from your mind. Well, yeah, through my own effort. And this is really why I created Refuge Recovery and why Refuge Recovery is a bit different than the 12 steps. Now, I'm not against the 12 steps. I started going to 12-step programs back then. And in 12-step programs, I found my people. I found a bunch of young, punk rock, street, felon, (laughs) right? I found my homies Mm -hmm. in what the 12 step rooms but the philosophy i never never resonated it seems kind of archaic well i'm not a religious person i i don't you know i don't believe in god i'm an atheist i've always been an atheist like none of that shit makes sense to me is that one of now as far as recovery program options i feel like it's kind of limited that's it it's really all it's been for the last 80 years that's and that really shows a reflection of society and the government's lack of concern for evolutionizing the procedures yeah because people evolve and information evolves why wouldn't the technique to help people evolve i mean there's been a couple of uh things that have tried you know to to create you know so it's not it's not government it's not a societal thing it's more individuals it's more cultural and treatment yeah um but we live in a Christian society. We all know that. So yeah. so it makes sense that a Christian approach to addiction would be – now, anybody – there are some people listening right now who are getting mad and they're saying it's not Christian, it's not Christian because they're really open-minded. They say God can be whatever you want it to right. be. As you understand him, it's okay as long as it's a male creator God. It's, you can <laughs> right. be a Jew. You can be a Muslim. As long as you're a theist, it's cool. Yeah. doesn't and matter the, what it is. <laughs> So um, when the real problem is that's all it is that's, and that's, that's all that's available. And, and all of those things are the same. You know, it's theism. Right. It's Which is believing in a creator, higher power, God. I never thought about that for that, the road that to recovery. will be able to like bless you into recovery and remove from you the things that are causing you to, you know, be a suffer and to be an addict. That's now, kind I, of an that interesting way. never made sense to me, but no. I liked the people. But when I started to practice and study Buddhism, that was a philosophy that made sense to me. The Buddha said, there is suffering. Suffering is normal. Everyone suffers. It's necessary. And, not, and now sometimes that's mistranslated as life is suffering, and that's not what Buddha said. He said, we have to break our denial, our minimalization about the fact that all of us have pain and unhappiness and suffering at times in our lives. And that's one of the four. That's one of that's the, the first noble truth. Four, four noble truths at the first. So noble when I truth. heard that, I was like, this makes sense. And it matches up with my 
experience. He said, and there's a cause to suffering, and it is repetitive craving. And I was like, yeah, that's what desire. I have. <laughs> I have repetitive craving. Now, it's semantics a little bit, but I don't like to use desire because um, what's, what's promised is you can get free from suffering. You can get free from craving. Right. But we have to make a distinction between craving and desire. Because we're not going to get free from desire. Yeah, you're right. Because it's, it's innate. Desire is innate. Desire yep. is I want. Craving is I have to have. Right. It's more of like a childish thing. It is. That's and, interesting. Yes. but we So we all have some level of that. But with mindfulness through our own efforts, right? And so this is where the Buddha says through our own efforts, you can train your mind. You can train your heart. You can break your addiction to pleasure. You can develop compassion and you can end the suffering in your life. And so this is very different where you said, you know, um, willpower. And so, yes, in, in Buddhism, we're saying, yes, based on your own will, your own actions, your own power, you can change your reality and you can get free and you can end suffering. You can recover from addiction. Uh, the twelve-step programs don't believe that. They say that's self-will, and only God's going to do it for you. Oh man, I have such a problem with that. And it, what about the thing that's been said a lot of times? And I don't know if it's more of like an outsider's thing that with the twelve-step program, it's really um, an, an addiction, an addiction replacement. The way that it's taught, like you're replacing one addiction with another, and that other addiction being God, or that the teachings of God to Right, right, right. Is is that something that you maybe, feel maybe, is a... may, maybe there there might be a little bit of that. Although even I don't think that that's totally true. And even if it was true, I wouldn't have a problem with it. Like to <laughs> to do something healthy, yeah, you know, to like replace an unhealthy repetitive behavior with a healthy repetitive right. behavior. I don't, I don't, I don't mind it. Um, there is such an emphasis both in the 12 steps and in refuge recovery, this Buddhist approach that we're, that we've created on community and getting together regularly and being part of a community. And, and it's necessary. That's actually. vital. Well, some would say psychologically that part of what addiction is, is an attachment disorder is a disconnection from human intimacy and connection. It's one of the reasons why we drink so much, why we use so much. My crazy childhood, like, yeah, like pretty you, easy to yeah. look at that as like, oh, I didn't feel safe. Or attached I didn't feel to anybody. Or yeah. attached. So I started, you know, shooting heroin. <laughs> to detach yourself even more, <laughs> totally. I'm sure, to just to have that sort of just dissociation from your feelings, from connections to anything. So you can be like, see? Yeah. This is this is a real thing. It's a real thing. So I don't, you know, personally, like if people are doing that and they're going to meetings every single day, they're meditating every day, like, cool, get addiction, get addicted get, get to addicted. meditation. <laughs> that, what a great thing. And, and partly what happened for me is that I was a, you know, 17-year-old kid. I started going to meditation retreats and I wanted to get free. I wanted to. Yeah. And so I started going to silent retreats and I started going to month-long retreats and three-month retreats. And with that youthful, vehement, I'm going to get enlightened, perhaps delusion, <laughs> you know, that sort of youthful. Like, yeah. I'm, And, you know, for me also, there was a bit of a, like a pride thing. And I'm, I'm vegan, straight edge. I don't drink sugar. I'm celibate. I'm better than everyone kind of immature spiritual idea. Like almost going to the complete opposite the spectrum, yeah. and so there was and being a, addicted to that. There was a bit part of addiction of life. to that. Well, that's, you're right. It's healthier though. It was definitely healthier, even though still imbalanced. And you know, after a few years of that, of kind of coming back down to reality and saying, actually, I want to have sex, <laughs> and I don't yeah. want to, you know, and I'm not going to stay vegan forever. And I want to, you know, be in this world. I want to be of service in this world, and I want to have some fun. I want to. I don't want to avoid like to pleasure. Live. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I want to change my relate. I want to have a healthy relationship to pleasure. Right. 
pleasure being desire or 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 pleasure being um pleasure your craving well the pleasure sometimes is cra- you know sometimes yeah. it's craving sometimes there's the thought and the feeling that says i won't be happy until i get this pleasure yeah and then sometimes there's the desire which says i want pleasure but i'm okay yeah whether i get it or not and that's a there's a big it, they're so similar but there's such a big difference in the origin and the execution what that can do to somebody who it has an addictive personality because desire doesn't go away no and that's okay and that's the one thing i think with the 12-step program where you know to sort of just ignore and push all of that away it's you have to you have to face what the reality is yeah and the reality is is those things just don't they're not eradicated from who you are as a human being. No, and there's not a magical force that's going to remove them from you. Right. And so is it a daily struggle for you? No, not at all anymore. It's not a struggle at all. The early years were uh, a little tough, you know, like kind of learning how to feel my feelings. and yeah. uh, Learning how to be uncomfortable, learning how to be in pain and not do anything about it. So would you say you were numb for a majority of your childhood? Well, I was, I think I was more in pain than numb, but I was numbing out the pain. Right. You know, so, and, and kind of, you know, in the really highs of, of drug use and the really lows of detoxing and kicking and all of that stuff. Did you have to like retrain yourself? Um, was it a sort of thing where painful things would happen and it would trigger a certain type of behavior from you? And is it something where you had to retrain yourself to be able to deal with that sort of mental process like do painful things bring you back to that childhood um behavior and when you were in that part of your life in that childhood part of your life was that something that you think got you deeper into those sort of dark holes right like actually feeling you know like maybe you went home and your mom did something where she treated you like an ass and your stepdad saying something were those things that were sort of fueled you to behave a certain way and as an adult is it something you come across at all i mean there um the answer is probably yes but it's not so clear right um in that way there's not a lot of clear examples that Mm -hmm. i can refer to uh for me there was this core like i said earlier suicidality suicidal ideation where Mm -hmm. i just like wanted to not exist now even when i got clean even when life started to get better there was still there's there's for so long still this kind of like it went from being actively suicidal to just destructive dangerous behavior and then even after i got sober there's still kind of dangerous behavior i've like always ridden motorcycles way too fast or driven way too fast this kind of like well i don't want to die but i don't really care if i survive or not after you got sober yeah, well, in in even in the earlier earlier well, and and even twenty years in, even wow, yeah, because that's what that's exactly what I'm interested in. Yeah, and and you know, and really, it shifted for me, mostly shifted because there's a shadow of that still in me, like, or I'm still kind of like, I'll do anything, I'll go anywhere, I have very little fear, and I, you know, and I'll drive crazy, and I'll ride motorcycles, you know, like, um. One time I was over here, I was living right up the street here when I first got to Los Angeles 10 years ago. And I'm an old lowrider. I have a 64 Impala with hydraulics. And, yeah, you do. And I, and, I was, and I was driving it, and my brakes went completely out. And I had zero brakes, but I was like about five blocks away from my house in Hollywood. <laughs> and I was like, I'm not going to fucking call a tow truck. 
I'm just going to drive home with zero brakes. Like, if anything gets in my way, I'm running into it. Oh, my God. But I'm pretty sure I can make it. <laughs> so that kind of just, like, wrecked Did you me. make it? I made it. Did you crash? Now, the sad How did thing, you stop the car? That's the sad thing, is that I made it all the way into the garage. <laughs> and then? And then I just... You know, bumped into just the back a little of the bit, just a little bit. That's that's kind it of did, like a movie. It, it did put a little dent in my car, though. That's okay. I'm sure you got it fixed. <laughs> did it satisfy? You were like, yes. Yeah. I would have been like, yo, I'm badass right now. But a big shift for me was when I had children. Oh, of, of course, of seven and of, how old? seven and four. Okay. And so a big part of that was like, oh, and actually now I have kids. There, I actually I, I don't care so much about my own survival, right? But I do care about my children having a parent. And so I'm going to be more more cautious and more present and more, you know, kind of, because I, you know, the truth is I do believe in reincarnation, and I do, I, do I don't, I don't think that you know when we die it's the end. It can't be. Yeah. So survival is not a big, huge, you know, fear of death isn't isn't a thing for me. But the preciousness of life and the responsibility, and you know, I've got this great life where I teach, you know thousands and thousands of people about meditation i run these treatment centers we've created this buddhist recovery program which is amazing it's you know it's amazing and so some of my friends and students around me you know they'll say like hey we want you around like don't be reckless because we want you know your your life's energy you have accountability to to be of service and so I, i mostly feel that way but it's also i can be a bit dismissive about it and it's this core childhood attachment stuff where i'm just kind of like well i'm not i'm not that attached so some of my friends call me no attachment no attach oh man also a great book title okay well i think you should put that down less jewy after less jewy (laughs) (laughs) now for you um is there do you have like recruiters to help i hate to say recruiters but for lack of a better term people who maybe um seek children who need help because i would think um especially because this isn't this is sort of like a newer approach well how do you how do you uh, one of the reasons i started writing and i wrote my first book dharma punks which is all about what we're talking about yeah punks about growing up with a punk scene i gotta get that is it on amazon i can't believe that they didn't send you copy well i'm I'm offended okay i'm gonna go into a rage we'll fire your producer (laughs) and my publicist okay okay (laughs) I want an autograph copy. <laughs> now I'm asking um, for too much. <laughs> so Dharma Punks, which is the story that really got out there, and it's really a teenage getting clean, going to India, you know, this whole kind of journey that I went through. And I put that book out there because of exactly what you're saying, as sort of outreach of like, oh, this will reach kids that are like me, that are going through this, and hopefully give them some hope. And, you know, Dharma Punks was bestseller lists, and this is 14 years that's, ago. That's awesome. That's and, amazing. And it continues, you know, like it's, you know, people are still reading it and people are still coming up to me like, I just read that book, even though it's 15 years old or whatever. And well, so that's that, the sort that, of thing that's kind of timeless anyway. That gets, that gets the message out. And then I have, I have four books. So then the second book is called Against the Stream. And it's about Buddhism as anti-establishment rebellion from the inside out, spiritual revolutionaries. And then a book called Heart of the Revolution that's about, um, a deepening of kindness and compassion and forgiveness, again, from the inside out. But also all of my work, I'm always looking at what are the practical, political, societal uh, applications of this. So right. that it's not just self-help. Yeah, like, it's like yes, how can you – what can you do to put it out yes, into, the, into yes your from surroundings? The yes. Yeah, yes from the inside. Yes for you. But also like how are you going to use your life's energy to How can you incorporate it? Yes. Yep. Which is important because then you get away from that selfishness and and you start to become a part of society and your community. Yeah. 
And so for a long time, I was just teaching Buddhism. And we have meditation centers in Los Angeles, one in Hollywood, one in Santa Monica. We have one in San Francisco. We have one in Nashville, New York City, like all over the country. There's these kind of punk rock Buddhist meditation centers that I started called Against the Stream. And, you know, maybe we shouldn't say punk rock because it's very diverse. Actually, there's the little old lady psychologist there and there's the street kids there and everywhere in between. Yeah, but it's I mean, it's it's a it's started from you. And that is a part of who you were, who you are. And I, I, I think punk rock can encapsulate a whole spectrum of people. Well, it's, I, actually, it's an ideology, but I don't think you're limiting by exp- expressing that as a, a theme or a, a lot of, motivation. A, a lot of people will still refer to our scene as Dharma punks, which I called the book and I refer to myself in that way, but I never called the meditation centers that because I didn't want to exclude people that don't like punk. Yeah. You know, smart. there's probably more people in the room listening to hip hop than listening to punk. Right. Because like, that's why, but against is pointing to rebellion. Not necessarily punk rock rebellion, but some sort of countercultural, lefty political. Which hip hop also. Which hip hop also. Hip hop and punk are very, even though that they're the execution of the music is totally different, totally different genres. The core is so similar. It's angst. It's angst, and it's and it's a um, it's an uprising. Yeah. It's you're fighting against you know the societal standards that don't fit into your life. Absolutely. You know who I wanted to ask if you knew? One of my best friends in New York City, his name's Charlie. He was in a band, Civ. Oh, yeah. Gorilla sure. Biscuits. Yeah, Gorilla Biscuits are, Judge. Fan- are fantastic. Do you know all these? Yeah, I know yeah. all those bands. So I, that's my connection to right. the um, punk rock world. And I... You know, that's it's not music I don't like. I appreciate all music. It's just not something I grew up around. It wasn't a generation uh, of music that I was exposed to. Because you're like 19. <laughs> I'm 19, obviously. <laughs> but um, I, I recently went to, Judge had a um, documentary done about them because, you know, Mike just left and the band was like, what's going on? And they had a live performance and all of these people came out. And in hindsight, it makes so much sense. It makes so much more sense because it had the, the types of people that went to go see this band, they all encompassed a, an air about them. Right. And that scene that you're talking about was very central to me because I was a punk rocker, drug addict. And when I got clean in 1988, I was still like, I don't know, how am I going to be in the punk scene without drugs? But those bands were all drug-free Oh, my God, bands. the straight edge. It was a straight edge Civ scene. is straight edge. Yeah. So it was, you know, I started listening to Judge and Gorilla Biscuits and Youth of Today. Yep. And Seven Seconds and Minor Threat and all of those bands, um, like, that, those were a huge part of my recovery and a huge part of, like, oh, I have a place still in the hardcore scene. You don't and have to ostracize yourself because you changed. Yeah. I got straight edge tattooed across my back. And in 19, I think it was 89 or 90, I saw Judge play in Berkeley. And uh, Mike Judge came up to me and he said, nice ink, brother. <laughs> and I was like, you know, I was 19 years old or however old I was. And I was just like, okay, Mike, you got the approval from Judge. <laughs> Did you see the documentary? Judge, I didn't see it. I no. think it's a it's a three four part series i think vice maybe yeah i heard i heard it was quite it's good, good. you gotta check it out I and think when they did their first it. reunion three years ago in new york i went i flew out for the show and... so then you probably saw my friend charlie because yeah, he plays probably. with them all the time he's yeah. a big red dude looks like a giant leprechaun I'm sure i've met him before. yeah he's all tatted up yeah, knuckled yeah. to neck yeah. his whole body he looks like he's got like a tattoo t-shirt on but he's, <laughs> he's a great dude you know he's got a wife and kids and yeah. that's interesting that we have that sort of connection yeah um you're from new york I, I lived in New York City for 10 years, but I'm from Syracuse, which is just a hobunk town. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. The one thing about me, like, I never got crazy into drugs. I always had friends that did them. I, they used to hotbox a geotracker. 
You know that small ass car? Everyone would hotbox it, smoking weed. I wouldn't. I'm like, you guys, I don't need drugs. You didn't need to. If I you didn't were need in to. <laughs> you were so stoked. I was one like, we gotta go to Taco Bell. <laughs> Let's drive around the school's track for five hours. <laughs> but I was like, I did that for like three years. I'm like, I'm not gonna do drugs, but I'm gonna be around it. But it, to me, it's like, you know, you know, I, I had an aunt that was an alcoholic. She died from it, and I have had friends that have passed away from it. And it's, it's, it's so important to have the recovery aspect be this sort of Buddhist approach, I think, because the 12 step, they can't encapsulate a whole population and people's mentality towards recovery. Well, it works well, you know, like um, what they say is that, you know, it's a, there's a spiritual aspect to what they call the disease of, of alcoholism or addiction and that there's a spiritual solution. And I don't disagree with that. Um, if your spiritual practice is theistic, the 12 steps work pretty well. You know, if you're going to pray and you're going to... If you're already pray, that way. Yeah, and, and if that's what you believe in, then, you know, and most people in this country lean towards that on one level or another. They're Christians, they're Jews, they're Muslims, they're, you know, so it makes sense that, you know, people lean towards that. Um, but to say it's the only way and to say you have to believe this... Uh, you know, me and hundreds and you know thousands of other people who don't believe that. And the truth is, I believe that probably half of the people in the 12-step programs don't really believe in God. They're just there because yeah, that's of the community and the steps are good. And, the and steps what other are, options do they have? And the steps are open-minded enough that you can, you know, you know, per, you know, even if you don't believe, you're still welcome to be there. So, um, you know, I think that the 12 steps are pretty cool. But for me... You know, Buddhism just makes sense. I've got no, I've got problems with the twelve steps, even though they're pretty cool. Uh, I have no problems with Buddhism. Buddhism makes sense yeah. from A to Z, even just on a religion totally aspect. Totally empowering. Totally, uh, you know, um, you know, it's about compassion. It's about nonviolence. It's about political and social yep. change. And how to so, treat your the people around you. Yeah. It, it is. It's a. It's a wonderful religion and philosophy yeah now some people have said and it might have been smarter of me to not call it buddhism because if you call it buddhism people have a lot of misconceptions and they think of the fat guy that you're rubbing his belly right. for luck which has nothing to do with early right. buddhism um and they don't understand because buddhism did become a religion even though the buddha was not trying to start a religion he was more of a psychologist more of a scientist saying yeah. like what's going on with the human mind what's going on with this lifetime how can we not suffer so much and he figured it out he's like oh mindfulness be ethical be kind be compassionate be forgiving towards yourself and others. He said it goes against the stream, like, but we can do this. We can rebel against the causes of suffering. So he was very much a prag- pragmatist. Yeah, he definitely practical. very pragmatic. But then they made a religion, and you know, now like 10% of people who say they're Buddhists actually meditate and actually do what he, because it's become a religion where they're lighting incense and that's their religion. Nam Yoho Rekekyo. Yeah, or chanting something <laughs> like that, which is fine. It's cool that, like, you know, doing a mantra like that, that'll get you Whatever, concentrated. Yeah. But it's not the whole teaching. It's not what the, you know, the original uh, practice was that would lead to, to freedom. Do you still meditate every day? I do. And in Refuge Recovery, we um, alternate mindfulness meditation with forgiveness and kindness and compassion so that right from the beginning, you're not only developing wisdom through mindfulness, you're developing uh, heart qualities and positive emotional qualities and forgiveness, right? Especially for addicts like you, you come in hating yourself and hating the world and feeling shame about all the people you hurt. So doing this sort of practical, here's a way to train your heart and your mind to forgive yourself and to forgive others and to make amends and to ask 
ask for forgiveness. That's got to be a terrible place for someone who's an addict. I was just thinking about how you were saying with meditation being in the present and not um, beating yourself up over the past and then stressing over the fears of the future. That's got to be like, just for somebody who doesn't know how to get out of that yeah. re- repetitive process, that you're just that damaging mental process, um, that's got to drive you up a wall. It's got to feel like you, you can't you can't get out of it. Yeah. And I, I mean, I feel like addicts are an extreme, but everybody's mind is a little bit like that. I Oh, absolutely. I mean, I definitely have a, um, uh, addictive personality for sure. I'm OCD and all that stuff. And I, I was going down a path when I was younger of drinking that was very bad at a young age. You know, I had a cousin who had a bar. I was at, in it when I was 14 years old. He would just hide me in the beer cooler and I would just chill there while the cops raided the place and I'd come back out like, let's do this. <laughs> so I was exposed to all that stuff, but I guess, I don't know, I, I just sort of saw a bad thing happening and I just wanted to get out of that before I got in too deep. Yeah. But, you know, it, it, like you said, having that sort of supportive family is vital. Yeah. And... um. And you know it's not it's not necessary for everyone because we see people recover all the time that have no one and they have to do it completely right. on their own. But I did notice that of like my core group from the streets, um, you know, of like fourteen people and like nine of them are dead, Jeez. and you know, and like they didn't have their, uh, you know, support that I had. And do you have friends you know from that era that are recovered? With yeah, you? yeah, there's a handful. There's a handful that made it out. Do they come to your recovery centers ever or to your teaching? Yeah, yeah. One of, teachings? one of my closest friends, Joe, uh, up in Santa Cruz, he uh, has been a part of it. He's helping me with refuge recovery. He's He and I right now are on this tour where I, it's called Wanderlust 108. And it's this, you know, Wanderlust yoga place here in Hollywood. I don't know it, but I, it, I one of my favorite words, I just said it last night, which is really weird. Yeah, it's a fun. So they're they're like this yoga festival, and they're doing that what they call a mindful triathlon, where they do a five k run, a big yoga session with this MC MC Yogi, and he's like a Hindu Buddhist rapper. I love it. And uh, and then I do a meditation. So yesterday we were in San Francisco, four thousand people doing yoga in Golden Gate Park after the run. Dude, that's and then, magical. And then probably ninety percent of them stayed and meditated for thirty minutes. Like. Was it pure silence? There's some instructions, but yeah, everybody's just sitting. So me or someone else is giving some meditation instructions to everyone, and everyone's just sitting. Dude, where are you going to do this again? Uh, actually, it's in Los Angeles next weekend. I'm not sure when you're airing this, but what? on yeah, the, when? on Saturday the thirtieth. This yes. this Saturday. This Saturday, Santa Monica. I'm dude. I, I live like you're in. I live four miles away. Yeah, yeah, you're in Santa Monica is Saturday. Um, then it's Arizona Sunday. Then next weekend is um, San Diego. And if people want to get in on go, it. Just go to the wanderlust.com, look for the 108 days, and they can come to these festivals. What a great idea for trying. L- yeah. L.A. might already be sold out. I'm not sure. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure it is. I mean, yeah. L.A. is like the perfect place for that yeah, sort so, of. 
why was it oh because joe is like on tour with me like me and joe started going to punk shows in like 1984 when we were like kids eating acid and and then he got strung out and called me you know like in the late 80s and he was like i gotta get i was already clean and he, he had to get clean and then he was sort of off and on but now he's got like five or six years clean he's doing like training wow. he's like working with us he's gonna become a meditation teacher like he's one of those guys that like made it through the scene which is i mean it that's it's 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 a tough thing. That's a tough thing. Especially when the outlets, I feel, are so limited. So for the refugee recover, refugee recovery, is it limited to just young kids? No, no. A re- refuge recovery refuge. Is, is, is everyone. And, and I said refugee. To yeah. people that are escaping Syria, can they? Exactly. <laughs> we'll help you re- we'll refuge help, recovery. We'll help you get off the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> is it open to all ages? Yeah, yeah. Well, um... So the treatment center, like if people actually want professional, we have a detox and a residential and sober living. That's all licensed for adults, so 18 and up. Okay. But the meetings, which is nonprofit, donation-based, they're all there's about 200 refuge recovery meetings around the country. So wherever your listeners are, they can look on the site and say, oh, is there a meeting in my town? And there might be. Um, and if there's not, we encourage people to start one. And everything you need is on the website yeah. or in the book to start meetings. And it's important for parents to also know that you know, there's an, another option out there, especially for, you know, in this generation, a lot of people are moving away from that theistic lifestyle and yeah. they're moving more towards just a general spiritual way of living. And they don't necessarily want to adhere to a practice that is rooted in religion. So I think it's important for parents to also have an option to know that they don't have to send their kid to a 12 step program. Maybe they haven't, it hasn't worked. Yeah. And maybe this being an alternative is an important option for them to have. Yeah. That's what we're finding a lot is, you know, we're getting a lot of, of people who have been through a whole bunch of treatment centers and have been trying the 12 steps and they're saying let me try something new and we're having great success with like oh oh you guys are actually teaching me how to pay attention and how to change my relationship to the craving rather than to just try to pray it away or ignore it or, or fucking like medicate it man we're in this yeah. like society where we're just pumping meds and that's one of the things i was saying before about like government the way they have dealt with addiction you know they just replace the addiction with another medication they, they, they get addicted to this medication and then they're lost in the system because of whatever you know fail failed uh attempt to make them become recovered yeah so there there is a there is a way to become recovered from drugs without drugs and without god yes is that safe to say yeah yeah for sure now i would land a little bit more in the middle of the path that a lot of addicts are, like I was saying, I was self-medicating my suicidal tendencies, right. and a lot of people that become alcoholics or addicts are medicating real depression, real anxiety, uh, real kind of um, psychological disorders. Right. And so some some of them actually need drugs. Yes. I agree completely that our too. society is over-medicating mm-hmm. and mismanaging and mismedicating people. And misdiagnosing. And misdiagnosing, yeah. So, um, but some people need meds and I, you know, and just because you need some, you know, SSRIs or, you know, depressant, like antidepressants doesn't mean you're not sober. I mean, take, take that right. and stay sober. And it doesn't mean you're yeah. uh, a drugged up person if you right. need meds to get better. Right. It's just it's so important to be able to have this spiritual connection to yourself for a recovery path yeah well like at our place we have a um a buddhist psychiatrist who, who who's one of my students and he works with us dr lickman he's our medical director and um you know he wants to do a book actually that says meditate 
rather than medicate because really we want to lead with that first we want to lead with let's teach you some meditation let's see what meds you might need yep. let's see what meds you're on can we get you off some of those yes and are some of them necessary and let's see what happens in you know 30 60 90 you know four or five months of meditation if actually you find out that i'm not that depressed anymore there was a study done that i was reading about where they um they took, you know, two, two groups and one they put on um, antidepressants and one they taught mindfulness meditation. And they said we had the exact same outcome. I said mind, and the point was meditation doesn't work better, but it works just as good in that case. And that that's study. wild. Whereas like actually this, you know, people report the same success, whether they're doing mindfulness regularly or they're taking their meds. Now, most people are too lazy to meditate, so they'd rather just pop a pill. That's true. So uh, meditation actually takes effort. And that's something that we're running to in refuge recovery where, you know, people are saying like, I'm going to go to the 12 steps because all you got to do over there is pray. <laughs> you and know? you'll, be, and and you'll over, be fine. And over here, you're making us meditate for like two hours a day. And it's fucking hard. <laughs> yeah, but imagine like you reconnect with yourself yeah. though. And, well, like, and, and what really works, you know, right. what really works. And I even just want to meditate on just a basic level just to shut my brain down. I mean, that's something that you can benefit from just on a regular day-to-day chill, shut your brain from the smog, the traffic, the BS. You know, meditation makes everything better. It makes pleasure better, right? Because our natural tendency is when something is pleasant to get attached to it, to cling to it. Right. And then that, you know, and then that clinging creates stress. Like, oh, I'm attached and whatever is happening is impermanent. And so when you're when you're meditating, you're like, oh, this is really wonderful, and I know not to cling, so that I just so I can enjoy it without ruining it. Because right, attachment ruins everything. <laughs> Clinging ruins everything. You just described my whole life. Right. So with meditation, <laughs> it makes it makes the joys better, and then also the pain, which is inevitable, and there's the disappointments and the failures and the losses, and you learn how to meet it with compassion. And so that now, which we, is the one of the root teachings of buddhism absolutely like it's natural to hate pain it's radical to care about your own pain but you can learn to do that through a meditative discipline so and anyone can do this anyone can anyone do you don't need to be a yogi or some sort of shaman living I mean, in a in no. a tribe in the amazon well i mean look at me <laughs> you came in looking like an extra from law and order <laughs> dropping all the spiritual knowledge and you know what's so funny when you were standing over there when i was doing my intro i could feel your zen you were like you know i i can feel i do stand-up comedy and i you know i i feel energies it's just a part of what 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 i do what a lot of comedians do and when you came in the room i honestly could like you feel level is that crazy? Am I, I imagining that? Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going on inside there, but... Um, <laughs> inside your bed, inside my head. Over there. I can feel... I'm telling uh, you, I can feel uh, some uh, levelness coming from you. I, I'd imagine that's not really the kind of audience you want when you're doing stand-up. Like, there'd be too mellow. No, but like when you You want people that in, are more reactive. Like, when you walk in, you have a different air about you. Yeah. But it's so... It's this 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 weird dichotomy because you your, your external... Your, your packaging would tell me something else. You're, it's it's kind of cool that you have recovered, and you. I also feel like your life is on you, like yeah. your experiences, your tattoos, and all of this. Like you, you embody what you've lived, which is important because you don't want it. You can't just forget all that shit. 
Well, when I was creating um, this Buddhist recovery process, I called it refuge recovery because it's a core teaching that through these practices, you will develop a uh, reliable internal refuge where you will have what you're calling that Zen, where you're having a, a sense of ease and well-being, whether life is painful or pleasant, whether it's stressful and you're about to do an interview and you're not sure, like that there'll just be an internal refuge that you can access it through mindfulness of like, okay, right now, it's like this, and I'm going to go do this, and then I'm going to get in the car, and I'm going to go do that, and just being fully present with whatever you are doing, and so that you're at ease in the midst of the reality of your life, even when it sucks, even when it's like, oh, wait, this, yeah. you know, the, this this crowd really stinks, and they're not laughing, <laughs> or whatever it is, and being able to be okay and not suffer about it. So That's, uh, well, maybe I am doing meditation, I don't even realize it. <laughs> I've had had those internal conversations so many times. Yeah. And you're like, this, it's a, I'm not going to die. Yes. It's, it, I'm going to figure out a way to learn from this moment and the next time make it better. Somebody was just telling me that story about Chappelle the first time he went on. I think it was at the in New York at the, um, not, not uh, what's what, the big theater? one up in Harlem? The uh, Oh, Apollo. Uh, the Apollo. Yes. And, he, and he got booed off the yes. stage. <laughs> And then he came up and he's like, he was a teenager. And he's like, why? Like, like everyone, 19. He was like 19. And he's like, they are so mean. Like, I'm just a kid. <laughs> but then he said, uh, he said, but it didn't kill me. I'm okay. Like, I survived it. And now I know I can survive anything. Yes. You know, and so I think probably that's part of what you're experiencing, what I'm experiencing, uh, of kind of like, well, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? The, gonna the be, blow isn't so painful. I'm going to be embarrassed. Like, right. oh, it's just pain. Like, I know how to handle pain. pain. Yeah, and then you know how to process it, and you know it's not going to kill you. Pain's no big deal. It's no big deal. Pleasure's better, but pain's no big deal. Is that the fifth book? <laughs> <laughs> it's been so nice talking to you. I I feel like um I don't know. I I I'm excited for people who have addictions. Is that that's yes. that crazy? I really am because uh And if they don't have one yet, they should develop get one, one and then go through this program. because life is way better to be if you're being in recovery is better than not being in recovery. We all know that. <laughs> Maybe I'll get an addiction, you, go through the program and then let people know it works. That's what you need to do. It's extreme, but life is short. <laughs> totally. And I can use my meditative <laughs> abilities to be calm in those crazy moments. Yeah. Where can people find you? Let them know where they can stalk you. Um, RefugeRecovery.com, AgainstTheStream.org. Um, those are the, there, in there's your also books. Dharma Punks, Against the Stream, Heart of the Revolution, Refuge Recovery. People will find them there, you know, online, in every bookstore. It's HarperCollins is the publisher. Oh, that's so, good. So they're everywhere. That's dope. And yeah, my copies are in the them. mail. Your copies, I yeah, they're in the mail. <laughs> My copies are in the mail. Uh -huh. uh, it's been, it's been so delightful talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, nice to meet you. And Thanks I appreciate for having me you on. doing it. Appreciate you doing your damn thing. All right. Can can you tell me who got your teeth done? Because I want to get some teeth. I got those done in San Francisco about fifteen years ago. Can you see the heart? Oh shit! You got it's a heart. That's right. I'm gonna get a middle finger on my tooth. That's, That's what I'm gonna get. I'm gonna get a that. gold middle finger. You got to do it in like the black enamel, so it really you know. So it kind of gold just... with the black enamel. Yeah. <laughs> you and I walk into the room. We're gonna confuse the fuck out of everybody. <laughs> Well, you take care of yourself, man. Right, thank you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. 
Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.